you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 11. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. And we're going to jump right in this morning. We're looking at 44 verses of Scripture. So I hope you brought a snack with you. Uh, I think you should just cancel your brunch plans right now. Text your loved ones. Tell them, no, I'm not lost. I'm safe. Dixon's just talking really long today. So we're going to be looking in John chapter 11. And as we're turning there, we're reminded that we're talking about nearest and dearest through the book of John. And in it, we see Jesus' best friend, John, saying, here's how to have a relationship with Jesus where he's highly exalted, but also a best friend kind of relationship with him. And 90% of the Gospel of John is unique material not found in the other three Gospels, in the other three synoptics. And so as we move through this passage of Scripture, let me just talk to you about the idea that it's going to talk about suffering, it's going to talk about death, it's going to talk about processing that, and it's going to talk about incredibly good news in the midst of heartache. So in the beginning of this passage, suffering and death comes for us all. And I wonder how many of you who are here this morning are sick or suffering or know someone that's close to you that is. This passage will appeal to you. So beginning in verses 1 through 3, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So John says, listen, I want you to notice some things about the Lord Jesus. Jesus had healthy relationships with people. Jesus had friends. He hung with Lazarus. He hung with Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha. And they were kind of like an extended family. And when he would be in the area, he would stay at their home. And so let me just follow up to you with this and just say to the men here for a moment... And in particular, to the single men. I want you to take notice in this passage how Jesus relates to women. And in particular, how he relates to single women. And he relates to them in a very special, loving way. Do you, as men, treat women with honor and respect? following the pattern of the Lord Jesus. In fact, it says in the scripture that as men, we are to treat women like they're our sister, with honor and respect. Watch how Jesus treats these women. And so Jesus' good friend, a friend that he loves, is dying. And the sisters are in crisis, and they are scared. And they send word to Jesus, please come and help your friend. And Jesus loves Nazareth, uh, Lazarus, and, he, and he's good friends with him. And he has a fully appropriate, healthy relationship with a male friend, a friend that he loves, and everyone knows that this is the case. And I want to just say to the men again, as we go through this passage, I think the women get this, generally speaking, better than us, but... To the men in particular, I want you to notice how it's okay to be real. It's okay to be emotional. 
It's okay to be expressive. And some of you, perhaps men or women here, came from a home where your dad never told you that he loved you or showed you that you are loved. And if this is the case, in Jesus' name, you need to break that curse in your family and as the next generation comes from you. We're going to see this in Jesus. Verses 4 through 6. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He had healthy, appropriate relationships with men and women. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And so Jesus says, listen, I want to paint the big picture for you in the midst of this. This is all for the glory of God. And when we are in crisis, it's really hard to see the big picture. All I can see typically is my own pain or the pain of the person that I love. And Jesus says, I want to remind you of the big picture. And then he does a really weird thing. He waits for two days. How would you feel if you called 911 and they said to you, okay, we're closed for the weekend, we'll get back to you in a couple of days? And I wonder how many here have learned that when it seems like God is late or it seems like God doesn't care, actually he is never late and he deeply cares. And to me, and perhaps you as well, it often seems to me like God is seldom early, what we would define as early, but in reality, he is never late, and actually, he cares about whatever it is we care about more than we do. But this scene raises some serious questions. Why didn't you come right away? Don't you care? Then two days goes by, and it says in verse 7, Then he says to his leadership team, let us go back to Judea. This is very important. We cannot be primarily motivated or moved in life by need or opportunity. Did you hear me? We cannot be moved or motivated in life primarily by need or opportunity. Those things are important, but they're not primary. More important than need or opportunity is the will of God. What is God saying to me about this, and what is he saying to me specifically about the timing of stepping into this? You know, last summer I was faced with with a pressing need, and it was right in my face. And an opportunity came up to address it. And every part of me logically and rationally said, pick up the phone today and make it happen. But I was, as I was praying, it, it was just clearly impressed on me, not yet, Scott. You need to wait. And I did not sense God's release, even though it didn't make sense, humanly speaking, to wait. And later I was praying, a while later, one weekend, and it was very clear from God Now is the time. And I called, and now in hindsight, 
as I look back, because God knows the beginning from the end, I realize it's so good that I didn't move in that direction. Need and opportunity were just pulsing in my face, pressure. But no, what's more important is God's will and God's timing. And this is what's at play in this passage. Then Jesus Disciples say to him, but rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus had primarily as a mission the goal, the role, to seek and to save that which is lost. This is important too. When you are committed to being in the will of God, it's not necessarily safe. We live in what I like to call a bubble wrap society where, where our safety is just this overwhelming issue in life. And this runs, this idea of how Jesus did life runs right in the face of that. He didn't do foolish things. He didn't jump off the temple like he was tempted by the devil to do. But he didn't live a safe life. He sacrificed everything for you and me. And when we are in the will of God, it's not a safe place. And so the story continues. And in this section of the scriptures, we're going to see how different people process grief differently. This is very important. Different people process grief differently. And that is okay to process grief differently. Beginning in verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After Jesus had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. In other words, we don't really have to go and risk getting, getting killed here because, you know, if he, he's going to get better. But they, so they don't really get it. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, he went out, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. My brother had not died. How many of you have lost someone you really love? Mary and Martha had lost their brother Lazarus. And it says that he's been dead for four days. That's significant because at that time in history, many of the Jews had this mythological belief that when a person died, their soul hovered near the body for three days. And so it was almost like, yeah, they're dead, but they're not really dead. They're dead, but only kind of dead. 
And so it's very deliberate that four days goes by. This is part of God's timing. This is part of God's will. Because they would say, he's been in the grave four days. In other words, and they're all thinking this. He's not just dead. He's dead, dead. He's like really dead. And so Jesus gets there, and there would have been, in the Middle Eastern heat in particular, significant body decay and odor. And as Jesus arrives in the little community that's two uh, kilometers, it's two kilometers, two miles, I think, southeast of Jerusalem, one of the two, Martha runs out to meet Jesus because Martha is a doer. We see Mary and Martha in another passage of Scripture, and their personalities are on display in the exact same way in a different set of circumstances. But Martha is a doer, and she runs out to Jesus, and she says, Lord, and then she says, if only. And I wonder how many of us here have had that kind of a conversation with God. Lord, if only you had done this, that, or the other thing, then this would have happened. And you know what I really love about Martha? Is that she brings her frustrations and her questions to the Lord. And this is very in keeping with Scripture. She doesn't try to hold it in. She doesn't go and talk to other people about it, per se. If you read the Psalms, you see people in the Psalms over and over again doing this, going to God and just being real with God and being raw with God. Because they understood, and Martha understood, that God knows what I'm feeling. He knows everything, Scripture says. He knows what we're thinking. So he knows what we're feeling. He knows what we're experiencing, what we're thinking. And really, Martha is an illustration to us, as is the Psalms, it's just okay to be honest with him and then invite him into the situation. And that's the key. Be honest and then invite him in. Verse 22. Martha says, you know, if only you'd been here. Then she says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. If you read in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, the Jews believed there'd be a resurrection of everyone at the end of time. But this idea of someone being revived or resurrected before that, they had no knowledge or thoughts about that. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So she says to him, if only you had been here, and if only you had done this, you could have spared my brother. And Jesus says, just a second, Martha. I'm not done yet. And then he, he makes a history changing statement. Everything in human history changed based on this statement. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And if this is true, it's a standalone comment in all of history. If Jesus really is the resurrection, if he conquered sin and death and rose from the dead, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, everything is different. And if that is not true, Christianity is this cruel joke. 
And so Jesus enters into human history, and he does this in order to die. He's here on mission. He does this in order to die in your place because of your sinful choices and mine. Because every one of us is irreparably lost from relationship with God. We're completely distanced from God. And God will only forgive us based on what Jesus did for us in a substitutionary way by dying on the cross for us. And he did this so that our sins could be forgiven, so we receive him as Savior and we surrendered our life to him as Lord. So he says in verse 25, whoever believes, this is not just an intellectual checking of a box, this is an all-in commitment to Jesus, who is your unique Savior and your absolute Lord. This is what the word believe means in this context. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, will live. And this is available to every human being. Jesus didn't come and just die for a certain segment of society or a certain people group or a few people. He died for everyone. And he makes this relationship available to whoever would receive it. You know, the worst thing in life is not dying. Biblically, the absolute worst thing is dying without Jesus. And so I invite you to trust him. If you haven't done that already, you could trust him today. You could commit your life to him. You could surrender your life to Christ. And then Jesus asks what I consider really the most important question in all the world in verse 26. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? I've been saying this through this series. The most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus. This is what he's asking. Do you believe this? We live in a world that's filled with a lot of bad news. Not all, but a lot of it's bad news. This is incredible news that he shares. This is, in fact, the very best news in all the world, that he is the answer, literally the fulfillment and the answer to the longing that is in absolutely every human heart. He's the only answer to the longing that's in every human heart. Verse 28. And after she had said this, she goes back into town and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And so there's a lot of passion and emotion 
in these verses. Mary comes. Martha says, hey, the teacher's here. Mary runs out to him, and she, she falls at his feet. She's overwhelmed by the loss of her brother. And I wonder how many people here can relate to this kind of loss. There's five different people or groups who process grief and death differently in this passage. Let's just talk about them briefly. First of all, there's Lazarus. Lazarus knows he's really sick. And we don't know everything that was going on there, but it might be a reasonable guess. Notice I said that guess on my part that he knew he was going to die. Maybe we don't know. Maybe he was very emotional about that. Maybe he was very subdued. Maybe he was very stoic. We don't know. But it's, it's probably a safe guess to assume that he knew his day was coming. And this evokes a really important question. Are you ready for the day when you will die? Are you ready to stand in front of Jesus, of whom the scripture says he is the righteous judge? And to be able to say absolutely truthfully and with total transparency and sincerity, I know there was nothing I did or didn't do that matters at this moment. I know that my name will only have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life for one reason, because of what you, Jesus, did for me. And I humbled myself and I surrendered myself and I received salvation. I received direction and agenda for my life from you. And I understand the only reason I can be on Team Jesus and spend eternity with you in heaven is because of what you did, Jesus, not because of what I did. And friends, that's going to be a moment like we talked about in the last few weeks where it's just going to be you and Jesus. And are you ready for that day? Then there's the friends. Jesus is coming uh, down to Judea from, I'm assuming, the north country, and he's walking down to uh, Jerusalem and to Bethany. And the Jews, it says in verse 19, and then again in verse 31, the Jews have come to comfort Mary and Martha. This is important. The church family has gathered with Mary and Martha, and they understand intrinsically the power of presence in that moment, the power of presence. And they surround her church family, surrounds her the power of presence. Let me ask you something. When someone dies, do you avoid the family? You know, people need their blood relatives when someone dies, but they also need their church family. Well, someone says, well, Scott, I'm really uncomfortable with death. We don't like to talk about death in this culture. Or I'm really busy. But I would push back and say, every one of us has, has been born into a biological family, but we've also been, it says in John 3, born again into a spiritual family. And the scripture is very clear about this. We need each other. And this is an important part of being the family of God. It says in Scripture that we are to mourn with those that mourn. 
And so some of us step back and we go, you know, well, that person's really hurting and, and, and there's nothing I can do and I have this orientation in life as a fixer and a problem solver. And if I can't fix it, I'm stepping back and I'm not going to get involved. And I push back and I say there's incredible power in presence. I first learned this from my pastor when I was 16 years old. I referenced this last week a little bit when my best friend and two other people important in my life died in a car accident. And two days after that, when I got back from Brandon to Regina, I'm sitting in the home of the 14-year-old girl. I'm 16, she was 14, of the 14-year-old girl that died in that accident. And I'm sitting with the family, and in comes Pastor Sipley, my pastor growing up. And Pastor Sipley uh, was a talker, and people are going, newsflash, a pastor who talks too much. I can't imagine that. But he was a talker, and uh, he walks into the room, and I noticed something about him. He said very little. And I watched him. There was certainly no cliches at that moment. And without saying very much at all, he communicated powerfully. And the message was this, we are here, and we are just going to hurt with you right now. Later on, we'll move on to hope, but right now, we're just going to be crushed with you. One of my professors, Martin Sanders, about six years ago, lost his wife, and uh, when she died, um, Martin and his kids, they were in this room, and a lot of people came to see them, and it was very interesting, something I've never seen before, but at the entrance to this room where they were, where people were kind of coming in to mourn with them, they put a big sign and remember, everybody grieves differently. They put a big sign, and it said, we are so glad you're here. As you come in, no talking, and please don't say one word, but hugs are welcome. Hugs are welcome. See, Martin understands there's incredible power in presence. Let me illustrate it another way. You, you, you know, when you go to your kid's soccer game and it's, it's outdoor soccer game or her outdoor soccer game and it's just freezing, you're cold and you're thinking to yourself, why am I here? You know why you're there? It's for that moment when Junior looks up off the field like they all do and looks into the stands and sees you sitting there and knows mom or dad is there. See, Junior knows there's power in presence. Do not avoid that funeral. Do not avoid that family that's hurting. The third one is the critics. The critics in verse 37, they, you know, they go, you healed that guy, blind guy back in chapter 9, why couldn't you help your friend? See, critics, they don't understand the difference between a question and an accusation. Mary and Martha had questions for God. I don't understand. Why didn't you come? Would you help me? Would you help me understand? Would you give me faith to get me through? The sisters are asking healthy, legitimate questions. Then there's the critics who just bring accusations. You ever sat with people like that? 
They ask questions, but they're not really asking a question. They're leveling accusations. And that's exactly what's happening here in verse 37. God, you're on trial, and you need to explain yourself to me. And I would say, Mr. Critic, God never has to explain himself to you. A healthy question, here's one of the ways you can know if you're asking healthy questions or not. A healthy question will ultimately, maybe not in the short term, but ultimately will draw you nearer to him. An accusation will drive you away. Faith is trusting during the weeping until some time later when there's rejoicing. Then there's Mary or Martha, Mary and Martha, the two sisters. And again, there's another story about them, and they, they just follow to type in that story as well. Uh, because this stuff is historical stuff and really happened. So the two sisters process uh, this grief, this tragedy, uh, somewhat alike, but actually quite differently as well. Um, when Jesus arrives, Mary makes the choice to stay back. And Martha goes right out to him. Because as I said earlier, Martha is a doer. Mary hangs back with people. Mary is, Martha is thinking, I have to do something about this. And so out she goes to Jesus. Mary, and, and in the other passage we could turn to, it's the same way. Mary is more, uh, more in, internal. Mary is processing things think through. She's hanging with people in the house. Maybe she's crying. Maybe she's singing a worship song. I don't know. But she's processing it differently than her sister. Both of them are godly women who experience and process grief differently. When someone's in crisis or grieving, we have to be really careful that we don't try to force them in a paint-by-numbers kind of way to go through grief in a certain way. Through our grid work. And so the key thing with both Mary and Martha who process it kind of differently, here's the key thing. They end up at Jesus. They take separate paths, sort of, but they end up at the key destination, Jesus. Different paths, same destination. And then there's Jesus. Let's just consider the emotional life of Jesus for a couple of minutes. He's not Mr. Spock. He's not in total control. He's not, not feeling anything. God is, as we've talked about earlier, he's both highly relational and highly emotional. And so Jesus, in different places in the passage, is deeply moved. He's very empathetic. He's compassionate. He's troubled in two different locations in the passage. And it says in the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Understand this about Jesus. Jesus is a man's man, eh? He's bashed his hand with a hammer many times. He's done hard physical labor most of his life. He would have been in great physical condition. He walked a lot. He was a man's man in every sense, and he cries at the loss, and he weeps at the loss of his friend. Weeping is not everyone's way. I understand that. But understand that it's a fully legitimate way to express emotion. It's a healthy way to be cathartic in approaching grief, to experiencing grief in full. And you know, we can have a physical funeral, but if we don't have a type of heart funeral, 
the healing never really begins. And so Jesus is emotionally present, and it's a good thing, he says, it's a good thing to show your love, however you show it. It's just a good way to show your love. And so as the spirit-filled God-man, Jesus, is, his emotions are guarded by the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Spirit. And he exhibits the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, Galatians 5, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we are in crisis or trauma, we can bring the presence of Jesus because we can be filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Spoiler alert. Does Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Yes, he does. It's interesting to me that he shows all of these emotions knowing what he's about to do already. Why is Jesus troubled? Why is Jesus empathetic? Why is, why is Jesus crying when he knows that he's going to fix it? I was thinking about this. I was thinking to myself, you know, when I rewatch over and over and over again Dave Ridgway kicking the winning field goal in the greatest Grey Cup ever played, which was won by the Riders in 1989, it's very emotional for me, even though I saw it live, even though I've seen it many times. Why is it when I know what's coming, it's very emotional? It's because you're emotionally present in the moment. The thing I notice about Jesus is he doesn't get overly theological at this moment. He's primarily relational. And so what often will happen at funerals or when you go to see that family is we think to ourselves, I've got to have the exact right thing to say to fix this. And the family is crying, and people will say things like this to them. Oh, it's all okay, you know, because the dead is going to rise in Christ, and they've gone to a better place, and, and they're saying these things. And it may be that it may not be, but it may be at the heart of what they're saying is, I'm uncomfortable with you being emotional and mourning in this way, and so I need to kind of shut this down. may not be why they're saying it, but I think sometimes it is. And these theological statements, they're all true. They're all good. But often this is not the time. Because what that hurting person is thinking, yes, that's all true. Yes, I believe that stuff. But I miss them. My dad died. And my, grand, my kids, his grandkids, will never know their grandpa. Or my wife died three days ago and I'm going to be eating breakfast alone tomorrow. They know God is good. They know the resurrection will happen, but I miss them. There's power in presence. Now the end of the story, verse 38. Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb, it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. But this time there's a bad odor because he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So they rolled away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, uh, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So Jesus is deeply moved again. And notice how he prays. He prays with thankfulness for what God has already done and what God will do. And Lazarus is revived, not resurrected. Revived means that he's going to die again someday. But it's foreshadowing of what will happen with Jesus when he's resurrected. And Jesus says, and he now shows us in a foreshadowing kind of way, I am the resurrection and the life. And all of this stuff points to the cross. Well, Jesus goes to conquer sin and death, and he rises from the dead on the third day on Sunday. He spends 40 days with his leadership team, sometimes um, with crowds of upwards of 500 people. They interact with them. They touch them. They see him eat food. He spends time with them. And these people were absolutely convinced of the resurrection, because we know from historical documents, from scripture and other extra biblical sources, that the vast bulk of these 500 people, over a long period of time, individually or in small groups, died horrible deaths because of their belief in the resurrection. If they had just recanted, they would have skated. But they watched someone die a horrible death. Six months goes by, now it's their turn to die the same kind of horrible death. You will not find 500 people over a long period of time that will die for something they know is a lie. They know it's a lie. I'm going to die for a lie. Not a chance. Not a chance. And so he rises from the dead. He ascends to the Father. And he alone forgives sin and conquers death. And when he returns, he will call Lazarus by name, just like he did here in John chapter 11. Lazarus, whose soul right now is in heaven, but whose body is in a grave in the Middle East. And Lazarus will come forth, and Lazarus will receive, 1 Corinthians 15, a glorified body that no longer decays. And as we looked at last week in chapter 10, if you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, he will call you by name. He's not going to call a mass of humanity. He will call you by name because Jesus died for you personally and he will raise you personally from the dead and you will be with Jesus forever. And this is why Jesus asked the most important question in the world, do you believe this? Because the most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus. 